We're going to pick up in our series, Zealous for Good Works. This is our last Sunday in this series. So you can turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. We'll also have the scriptures on the screen. I'm going to be focusing in on one verse this morning. You are asking the question, how can he do that? And the answer is, you heard my sermon last week. I can be long-winded, so we'll get through this together this morning. Um, you know, I want to start off with a thought as we're thinking about our text this morning. I want to suggest that for many North American Christians, churches, that good works are in our roots, but they might not presently be in our DNA right now. Okay, you got that? In our roots, but not presently in our DNA. What do I mean by this? Well, I kind of look at my, my own origin story as I think about this. None of you would probably look at me and say, Rob is a country boy. I mean, I've never been accused of that before. No one's ever thought that I'm a country boy. And yet, all of my roots originate from the country. Technically speaking, my family is a bunch of hillbillies, okay? We come from the Appalachian Mountains. My parents, they were raised in West Bygosh, Virginia, almost heaven. And uh, I was born in West Virginia. My extended family is from West Virginia. In fact, when we get together as a family for family reunions, we love to sing the song Rocky Top by the Osborne Brothers. And a lot of you like, I don't even know what that song is. You need to look it up today on YouTube. It is a cultural experience. And I promise you, when Rocky Top is sung at my family reunions, my second cousin pulls out the spoons and plays the spoons, and a couple of cousins stand up and engage in what I would just call a shindig. I don't know what else to call it. So, in my roots, not in my DNA, why? Well, because I left West Virginia at the ripe old age of six months, and I went north past that Mason-Dixon line, and I was raised in Yankee territory. You could even think of it like this. I was Daniel being raised in Babylon. Now, I think of the average church across America. If you think about our DNA, could we honestly say the average church, don't think of specific examples of churches that you know that are doing it well. I'm talking about, broadly speaking, the average church. Is the average church known for meeting the needs of the community well? Well, probably not. In fact, George Barna said it like this, We're ten, we tend to be viewed as an island of piety surrounded by a sea of irrelevance and what this has resulted in is the church losing its voice. Pastors, churches tend not to be the first place that local leaders go as the community is experiencing problems to help solve those problems. Now, we could argue as to the why of this, but I think we could all agree that this seems to be the facts on the ground. This is reality. And I also want to suggest this morning that part of the problem may just be us. Why? Because again, 
I think good works and mercy is in our roots, but it's not presently in our DNA. So let's take a look at Paul's words here in Titus chapter 3, verse 14. It's a very simple verse. I'm not going to take a lot of time to explain this verse. I think it it really just speaks for itself. He says, and let our people learn to devote themselves for good works so as to help cases of urgent needs and not be unfruitful. So you got that? It's a pretty simple verse. We need to learn to devote ourselves to good works. Why? Because there's urgent needs that are out there beyond the walls of the church, sometimes inside of the church. And we need to do this so that we will not be unfruitful. Now, I want to address this, um, this verse from, by looking at two different things about the church. First, I want to ask the question, are Christians biblically and historically known for good works? So we're going to do a, a survey, if you will, of biblical texts and then some examples from church history. And I think you'll draw the conclusion as we do this that the answer is, of course we are. Secondly, I want to ask then, well, if that was our roots and it's not presently part of our DNA, how do we get back to those roots? How do we do that? So we'll begin with an Old Testament example. I'm thinking of King Josiah. Now, King Josiah in the Old Testament, you'll find his story in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. When you think about people who did great things that they're remembered for, they're generally associated with one great ideal or invention, or achievement, or cause. For example, when I say the name Martin Luther King Jr., our mind quickly goes to the civil rights movement and how good that was. Or you think of the name Abraham Lincoln, and you might think of emancipation, or you think of the name George Washington, and you might think of the American Revolution. What would we remember about King Josiah, well, he has these biographers, and they tell us a lot about his life. He becomes king at the ripe old age of eight years old. He goes through this dramatic spiritual revolution at the age of 16. He actually tells the priests to renovate the temple, and while they're renovating the temple, they discover the Old Testament law. And this brings about a revolution, a spiritual and moral revolution in the land of Judah. It tells us in 2 Chronicles this, that the prophet Jeremiah composed funeral songs for Josiah, and to this day, choirs still sing these sad songs about his death. So it's from these songs that we might discover that one thing that he's remembered for. And to find that, we actually have to go to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 22 verses 15 through 16, and the prophet Jeremiah writing of Josiah said that Josiah was just and right in all of his dealings. That is why God blessed him. He gave justice and help to the poor and needy, and everything went well for him. Isn't that what it means to know me, says the Lord? So as I think about his one thing, I want to suggest to you this morning that Josiah did what David Brooks says. He lived for eulogy virtues, not resume virtues. 
A lot of people in this world are living for resume virtues. That's kind of your professional qualifications, and those things can be contrasted against other people. Eulogy virtues are different. That is how you conduct yourself out of your character. It's who you are. So as you think about the two, some people achieve the resume virtues. Anyone can achieve the eulogy virtues. Now, why do we call it eulogy virtue? Well, it's because think about the last funeral speech you listened to. As you heard people talk about the person in remembrance, they tend to say things like, he was caring, she loved Jesus, she spent her time when no one was looking, caring for the needs of others. They don't tend to say things like, she had really accrued a lot of frequent flyer miles. So that's your eulogy virtues. But even more than being remembered well, listen to what Jeremiah says. Isn't that what it means to know me? So if you want to be someone that others look at and they see Christ in you, that is born out of a heart that gives justice and help to the poor and needy. Let's go to another example. We're going to look at Paul, the Apostle Paul, when I think of Paul's ministry, I don't tend to quickly go to thoughts of mercy and benevolence with the Apostle Paul. I tend to think of the Apostle Paul more for his missionary journeys. But listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2. He's with the apostles. They're dividing out ministry responsibilities between Peter, James, and John, and Paul. And in Galatians 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul and Barnabas are going to the Gentiles. They're going to the Jews. And catch this last verse. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I find that to be a very interesting word. If you're eager about everything, you're eager about nothing, right? So eager highlights the core of what your passions are. And Paul really seems from the New Testament to have had two great passions. The first passion was he passionately loved bringing the gospel to places where Jesus hadn't been preached before. He said that in Romans chapter 1, verse 15, to the Romans. He says, I am so eager to preach the gospel to those of you who are in Rome. And now here in Galatians, we see that he is also eager to remember the poor and care for the poor. In fact, as you read through the epistles, you'll notice various moments where Paul talks about raising funds because of this great famine that had taken place in the land of Israel. And he's gathering resources in order to bring those resources back to meet human need. So if we're looking at his life, we can say that Paul was eager to do both. He didn't compromise or sacrifice one in order to accomplish the other. Let's look at church history now. I love reading about the history of the early church. Author Rodney Stark wrote an incredible book called The Rise of Christianity. And in that book, 
he traces how Christianity grew at a rate of 40% per decade for the first several hundred years of the church. Why, we might ask. One of the very interesting things that he notes is that Christians responded well to a series of plagues or epidemics that hit that Western world early on in the first three centuries. In AD 165 and then again in 251, a plague sweeping through the world, it's leaving a massive death toll, it's devastating, it's disorienting. The local politicians, the leaders, the religious leaders, they don't know what to do with this, and their response to, at this time is completely lackluster. There's human suffering, and they're not offering any solutions. But then the Christians did respond. How? They took up the cross, like Jesus said, they bore it, and they served people in the midst of this epidemic. One of the early leaders, Dionysius, tells us this, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains, many in nursing homes and curing others, transferred the death to themselves and died in their stead. This was the cross that these early Christians bore. They picked up the servant towel like Jesus they served the needs of others, and the result was explosive growth in the first three centuries of the church. I think a part of this is that the Christians chose to love by playing show and tell. They loved to show the love of Jesus and tell people about the love of Jesus. They didn't live in what Jim Collins calls the tyranny of the oar. What is that? Well, my kids right now in their education, they're studying logic. And it's funny, not a lot of logic goes on today in the world, like we've kind of forgotten it, it's a lost art. But there's a logical fallacy out there called the fallacy of the either or. So we, we make something into an either or when the two things are really not at odds with one another. Think about it in terms of grace and good works. Sometimes we can commit this fallacy because we say to ourselves, well, I wasn't saved by works, therefore God must not care about works. That's fallacious. No, we weren't saved by good works, but we were definitely saved for good works because God is a God of good works. That's his plan for your life. That's his goal for your life. We can do the same thing with good news, telling people about Jesus and good deeds, showing people the love of Jesus through what we do. Let me just say this loud and clear. This is not an either or. This is a both and. The gospel 
gains lift when Christians practice both together. Think about it like an airplane, right? An airplane doesn't require one wing to fly. It needs two wings. So Christians that practice only good works without good news or only good news without good works, well, they're just kind of like flying around in circles, probably spiraling down to their demise, right? But when you practice both, they complement one another. And the gospel flourishes in that environment. We can actually see in history when one or the other was not practiced that it resulted in the church losing its influence. I think about the church in Russia. I've read about this, that when the communists took Russia in 1917, they, they vigorously persecuted the church, but they did not make Christianity illegal. In fact, in the Constitution they wrote in 1918, chapter 5, article 13, they said in that Constitution that people could practice religious freedom. But one thing they did do that had a devastating impact on the church is the communists outlawed the church from doing good works. So no longer could the church fulfill its historic role of feeding the hungry, educating the young, housing the orphan, caring for the sick. Instead, they just said, just open your doors, practice your religious services. You can say what you want to say on your Sunday morning gatherings or when you get together, but we're going to take care of the good works. And guess what happened to the church there in 70 years? It became largely irrelevant in their own community. Listen to this. You take away service, and you take away the church's power, influence, and evangelistic effectiveness. Let me say that one more time. You take away service, and you take away the church's power, influence, and evangelistic effectiveness. So the real question becomes, if that is true, how do we get back to those roots? How do we get this heart for the community deeply embedded in the DNA of the church again? Let's read Titus 3.14, and we'll unpack it a little bit. Again, Paul says, Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent needs and not be unfruitful. Now, I'm an analytical guy, so I like to think of things in terms of steps or sequence or however you want to think of it. And I want to suggest that step one, if we want to alter our DNA, involves learning. Okay, learning. We've got to relearn the art of doing good works. Think about that analogy that I used at the beginning. I talked about my roots being different than my DNA. So how would I get back to my roots if I wanted to become a country boy again? Well, I would need an immersion experience, wouldn't I? I would need to relocate to West by Gosh, Virginia and live from that place. And guess what? I had that immersion experience. When I was in college, I spent five years in West Virginia. I was like Isaac. I had to go back to the land where I was from so that I could even meet my wife, a West Virginia bride. And I'll tell you, 
That was a great trip for that reason alone. When I moved back to Chicago after spending five years in West Virginia, people in my dad's church said this. They said, you have a thicker West Virginia accent than your wife who was raised there. Immersion, right, can really make the difference. And I think that that's what Paul's getting at here in this verse, that if we want to learn good works, we have to immerse ourselves. It turns out that devotion to good works is not your default setting. No matter how much I tell myself that I love people and I want to care for people and I have good intentions towards people, I don't believe that we're actually pre-programmed to focus on others, not since the fall at least. Instead, I think this is a competence that we need to grow. And we don't grow the competence by just signing up for a class to learn how to do it or reading a good book about it. That might educate us on it, but what Paul's getting here at here is he's saying, you learn good works by doing them. In fact, the force of the verb learn here is to learn through practice. It's experiential knowledge. Now think about the last time you learned something that was foreign to you or challenging. When you got into the learning process, did you find it always simple? Did you always like pick up every detail just easily and just find yourself using them flawlessly? Of course not. The, the whole idea about a learning process is that it is designed to stretch you. It's challenging. There may be times when you ask yourself the question, am I doing the right thing here? Am I doing this well? You get into the classroom, right? And what is the classroom? Well, I suggest the classroom is the community. And as you get out and you start doing good works, you're stretched and sometimes it feels disoriented. I put myself in the I'm still learning camp when it comes to all of this. I mean, recently, when Katie and I traveled to Turkey on the Apostle Paul tour, we felt like we were thrust into the classroom once again. We were walking the streets of Istanbul. It's late at night, and Katie and I are like, you know, when in Istanbul, right, you got to get out and experience the city life. So we're going on a search and rescue mission or a search mission to find baklava. You guys know what baklava is? 10 out of 10, highly recommend. So we're walking this city in search of a baklava store. And as we're walking along, we notice two Muslim women crouched down in the street. Appears to be a grandmother and a mother. And there's a little boy and a baby. And they're digging through the trash and they're looking for bread, and they're feeding it to the little boy. He looks dirty, he looks filthy, they look pitiful, and I'm telling you, as we were walking through the streets, I felt like I was like thrust into the classroom. I was completely disoriented. I didn't know how to ask them 
how I could help. I didn't know what was wrong with them. I didn't know why they found that sel- themselves in that situation. And it's really difficult because, yes, I could go and make myself feel better and maybe hand them some money or buy them some food, but guess what problem starts again tomorrow? The same exact problem, right? The classroom is not always clear and clean, is it? And simply writing checks at problems is just too simple of a response because if it was all about money, well, our country sends billions of dollars around the world every year, and have we eradicated poverty? No, because it's more complex than that. There's deeper issues than that that are at work here. I want to suggest then that step two is so important. That the DNA is really about being a servant. We've got to rediscover servanthood if we want to make a real difference. Jesus said this of himself, the son of man came not to be served. And a lot of us live out of that identity. We want to be served. It feels good to be served. But Jesus said he does the opposite. He doesn't come to be served, he comes to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Maybe the church would do well to broaden its definition of ministry. I believe that in your average local church, we talk about service and we tend to emphasize the sacred seven. Now, what is the sacred seven? Well, the sacred seven is this, it's working in the nursery, teaching Sunday school, leading a small group, singing on the worship team, ushering, greeting, or serving on a board and committee. So when I think about serving as a Christian in a church, my mind tends to go to those sacred seven. And I want to suggest that that's not wrong. It's important to serve inside the church. We talked about good housekeeping principles. When everyone does their part, the home runs smoothly. But if that is all I think about when it comes to serving, I have a very anemic view of serving. Because my service doesn't have to happen just inside of the church. I can serve outside the doors of the church as an extension of the ministry of the church. What if we broaden the definition to something like this? What if for us, serving was meeting another's need with the resources God has given you? What kind of resources has God given you? I've heard it said very simply, it's time, talent, treasures. We all have that resource, right? Time, if I want to start serving, it might involve me getting into my calendar and maybe even losing some things in my calendar that are good so that I can get to what is best. Talent, God's given each one of us a skill. He's given us an educational background maybe. He's given us certain gifts that we just seem to come, that seem to come naturally to us. How do I leverage those within the community? Treasure. That's your financial resources. And the only way to leverage your treasure in the community is you have to become a good steward of your resources. If you're living paycheck to paycheck or if you're dealing with crippling debt, or if you're just not thinking about how you're using your resources, that really becomes a blockade for you becoming a generous person 
and using your resources for the sake of blessing others. So I ask the question, how are you using your resources? How are you leveraging them to serve the community? We live in a day and age where Christians are responding to the community in three ways. Some are hiding from the community. Some are fighting the community. They're holding up a protest sign. And I want to suggest that, yeah, those might be responses that we could take at times, but really the, the, the big response that Jesus showed us and that seems to be the right response every time is the third one. It's serving the community. So we don't take a hideaway key. We don't pick up a protest sign. We pick up the basin and the towel like Jesus, and that results in something really special. As I serve people, I get to step three. And step three is I'm building gospel relationships. Serving is ultimately meant to lead to relationship formation. So One author hits the nail on the head as you think about the why you are serving. He says, in serving others, salvation is our ultimate motive. I like that. We're serving because we're intending to build gospel relationships. But he makes this clarifying point. He says, salvation is our ultimate motive, but not our ulterior motive. Do you see the difference between those two things? People sniff out motives pretty quickly. So if you get into the space of serving and you say, oh, they're not interested in hearing me preach about Jesus, and you stop serving, you had an ulterior motive. People might feel like they're just another notch in your Bible. No, we we come to serve just for the sake of serving with, of course, the ultimate ambition of building relationships with people that we might win them to Christ. I love how Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? Now, what kind of good is he talking about? Same thought process as Paul and Titus, right? If you're eager to do good, instead you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, Always be ready to explain the why. So you see the thought process here. He's saying you go and you serve people, and that results often in spiritual conversations. Why? Because people are going to ask you the question, why are you doing this right now? And Peter says, you had better have an explanation for your why when you are asked that question. It turns out that no one comes to faith in Jesus without hearing the gospel. They have to be told the gospel. So you can think of it like this. Serving tees up the opportunity, but you've still got to take the swing. You've got to swing the club. Paul talks about this in Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone? It's just logical, isn't it? 
If someone never hears the gospel, how can they respond to the gospel? Are they just going to see the gospel as I do things for them? Well, maybe they'll see the, the, the acts that give them interest for the gospel. But that's not going to win anyone to Christ. So I got to tell you guys, I'm a golf pro. And I love teaching people how to swing the club. Harry Fletcher is a good golf pro too. And you might recall that he put together that series, Principles for Effective Evangelism. We've got to get good as conversationalists. We have to learn how to have conversations with people. Every May, I like going through uh, just a theme for the month of May that I call Missional May. This May, we're going to be looking at four sermons on the life of Jesus that I'm calling Jesus Conversations. We'll be looking at the Gospel of John and just four conversations, individualized conversations that Jesus had with people. But I know you guys, you're like, I don't want to wait till May. I want to start swinging the club now even though it's cold outside and it's not always fun to golf. Well, let me give you a couple of just practical ideas on how you can get better at swinging the club. Think about these conversations in terms of three stories. Three stories. The first story is the person you're talking to's story. They have a story. They've been on a spiritual journey I want to suggest that the greatest tool that you have in evangelism, especially at the front end, is your ears. God gave you two of them in one mouth for a reason, didn't he? And as we as Christians grow the skill of listening and the skill of asking good questions, we have the ability to draw people out and to help them to start thinking about eternal things that maybe they're, they're shutting off in their heart or they've never really processed aloud with someone before. You can just ask simple questions like, where are you in your spiritual journey right now? And then here's a novel thought. You just close your mouth, you count to 10 in your head, and you just wait for them to talk. Or you ask them the question, do you feel like you're moving towards God or further away from God right now? Same thing, just let them talk. And look as you're, or, or listen, as you're hearing their story, see the places where it appears like God has been at work in their life. Second story is your story. So this is your testimony. This is just simply you say, would it be okay if I told you a little bit about my spiritual journey? Get good at telling your testimony. Can you kind of distill your testimony down to three to five minutes, hitting the highlights of your testimony? This is how I came to know Christ. This is what God's done in my life. This is what he saved me from. As you get good at that and you can say it in three to five minutes, it will prevent you from rambling. And as you tell your testimony, connect your story with their story. Help them to see how if God impacted your life, he can impact their life. The third story is God's story. That's the plan of salvation. Ask permission to tell them God's story. And there are so many good resources out there, tools that can help you to tell someone the gospel in a clear and concise way. I like to ask people this question. Would it be okay 
if we set up a time where the two of us could come together and I could tell you how I came into a deep, meaningful relationship with God. What I love about that question is you're really not putting anyone in a threatening situation. You're not forcing someone to have a conversation any sooner than that person is willing. In fact, I think great evangelists go as far as a person is willing to go at that time. And it involves just simple, good, downright question asking. And if the person says no, guess what you don't do? You don't tell them. And if the person says yes, that's great. Let's set up a time and have a conversation together. I just find that to be so helpful. And as you think about this whole evangelistic endeavor, it's not all on you. You don't have to close the deal in the moment. I am so convinced of God's sovereignty. And I'm so convinced that God doesn't need me to accomplish all of his goals in the world. I don't have to force things any quicker than God is taking things along, right? It's all him. And he just chooses to use me as a vessel. Now, the, the incredible thing about it all is like, I'm his plan A and he doesn't have a plan B. Like, God, what were you thinking there? Well, he's a lot smarter than I am. He knows that he can use you and me. As you think about all of this, I hope that as a believer in Jesus Christ and as a body of Christ, as a church, that you are feeling inspired to get back to your roots. I want to get there so badly. I want to see us become this city on a hill that Jesus was talking about. And I think we can really boil it down to one element. If we want to be that, we have to become a serving church. As we get outside, we start serving. That's going to fundamentally change our relationship with people in the community. John Stott wrote this powerful vision of a serving church. Let me just read this to you. He says, I had a dream of a church which is a serving church, which has seen Christ as the servant and has heard his call to be a servant too, which is delivered from self-interest, turned inside out, and giving itself selflessly to the service of others, whose members obey Christ's command to live in the world to permeate secular society, to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, whose people share the good news of Jesus simply, naturally, and enthusiastically with their friends, which diligently serves its own community, residents and workers, families and single people, nationals and immigrants, old folk and little children, which is alert to the changing needs of society, sensitive and flexible enough to keep adapting its programs to serve more usefully, which has a global vision and is constantly challenging its young people to give their lives in service and constantly sending its people out to serve. I have a dream of a serving church. I hope you share that dream. 
When you think about the big dreams that God places on our hearts, the ultimate dreams, the dreams that take us just where he intends for us to go, you have to ask the question, well, how do I get there? And I tend to think that the way you get to those big dreams is you have to enter into the space of asking the question, what is my next step? What do I do about this right now? Because until I vocalize it, it resides in the realm of intentions in my mind. I have to speak life into it. I have to say I intend to do something about this. Think about Nehemiah. He had a next step, didn't he? God had placed on his heart to build a wall to protect Jerusalem. But his next step was humble and obtainable. He went to the king. The king said, what's wrong, Nehemiah? And he said, I'm concerned for my people. We have a big problem. And then God just starts unfolding the story from there. What is your humble next step? What's our church's humble next step? Maybe your humble next step is just simply the next time you see a serving opportunity in the community that we give out at the church, you say, yes. You don't go through all the calendar and say, oh, I got too many obstacles, I can't make this happen. You just say, I'm going to try this. You know what happens as you begin to serve on occasion? Maybe that becomes a regular commitment. And then the rest of the story, well, guess what? That's God's story. You don't have to figure all of that out. You just simply have to trust him as you take the next step with him. Let's pray. Reading this prayer, prayer for making a better world. O thou who compasseth the whole earth with thy most merciful favor and willest not that any of thy children should perish, I would call down thy blessings today upon all who are striving towards the making of a better world. I pray, O God, especially for all who are valiant for truth, for all who are working for purer and juster laws, for all who are working for peace between nations, for all who are engaged in healing disease, for all who are engaged in the relief of poverty, for all who are engaged in the rescue of the fallen, for all who are working towards the restoration of the broken unity of the church, for all who preach the gospel, for all who bear witness to Christ in foreign lands, for all who suffer for righteousness' sake. Cast down, O Lord, all the forces of cruelty and wrong. Defeat all selfish and worldly-minded schemes and prosper all that is conceived among us in the spirit of Christ and carried out to the honor of his blessed name. Amen.